1: The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. So welcome, friends, to the podcast. And we have a little bit of reversal happening this week. With all of the protests happening across America and around the world in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, history is now more important than ever. And, you know, history itself is chock full of riots and protests. The Boston Tea Party... You know, anyone (laughs) just saying, you know, so be it protesting for women's right to vote in the early 20th century or a black person's right to live freely from oppression among his white peers today, protesting is built into the very DNA of the United States of America.
0: Yeah, April, as is systematic racism, lest we not forget that this country was founded by white people for white people and built on indigenous land by the labor of millions millions of enslaved Black men and women. We have come a long way, but we clearly have a long way to go. And April and I just want to say that we stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and recognize that we have this opportunity and responsibility with this huge global platform to help spread and expand the conversation.
1: Which is why, in lieu of our regularly scheduled episode that we had already done for this week, we found it very important to re-air our own two-part interview with Dr. Monica L. Miller on the cultural history of Black dandyism. And this is a topic that she explored in her critically acclaimed 2010 book, Slaves to Fashion, Black Dandyism and the Styling of Black Diasporic Identity. Monica provides an incredible insight into the intersections of fashion, race, and subversion throughout the Atlantic diaspora from the beginning of the slave trade up until today. So without further ado, we present part one. Welcome, Monica. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So the first in-depth study
0: of its kind, Monica, your groundbreaking book is about the history of Black dandyism in the African diaspora when millions of Africans were kidnapped from their homeland and dispersed around the world in the slave trade. And your book is a story of, quote, how and why Black people became arbiters of style and how they use clothing and dress to define their identity in different and changing political and cultural contexts. So, in essence, the book really provides a cultural history about the ways in which Black people, quote, style their way from slaves to selves. But before we dive into the history of Black dandyism— I am hoping you can define dandyism for our listeners today, especially as it relates to the black dandy's white counterpart, the most famous of whom is Beau Brummel. So what is dandyism?
2: I like to think about dandyism in a couple of different ways, in ways that are not just about the clothing. I think when we think about a dandy, um, in particular, in isolation, we think about fancy clothing, and we think about sometimes exaggerated clothing, and it's often on a male body. But when I think about dandyism, I think about it as not just the clothing, but also a kind of pointed, what I call a pointed deployment of gesture and wit in addition. And gesture, that can be something exaggerated, right, um, uh, embodied, right, as well as the wit can also be something that's kind of verbal or also embodied in some way. So I like to think about dandyism as that kind of package, mm-hmm. right? And it's that package that's kind of a response, a kind of critical response often to changing circumstances. Um, If we think about some of the most famous dandies, when we think about English and French dandies that come out of the 18th century, late 17th, early 18th century, those figures are emerging during times of really significant cultural and political change. So it's times when the hierarchies of, of gender or Um, hierarchies of power in general, kind of gender, race, um, class are transforming, right? And the dandy kind of emerges out of that environment to critique in some ways um, the previous norms and also to comment on the kind of future potential in some ways of those identities. So in that way, I think about the dandy's clothing, right? And um, the dandy's kind of person, right? as a kind of semiotic, right? It's some, it's, it's both interpretive and to be interpreted, right? So I think of these figures as really, really dynamic and, um, and in some ways, um, I think excessive in, in the best ways in terms of that they give us a lot to think about and they're, they're questioning and questioners.
0: Right. And so what does that specifically mean for say a black dandy?
2: So when we think about the kind of origins of dandyism in a kind of European context, one of the things that's important to remember and that that I was actually really surprised to discover, right, was that this kind of culture of turmoil that we talk about, or the kind of time of turmoil in the 18th century was a time that was, the turmoil was related to, right? Um, in some ways, political changes that had to do with imperialism that had to do with slavery that had to do with inequality that had to do with revolution, right? So, so there's a way in which, um, you know, brown and black bodies, um, uh, imperialism in Africa, um, slavery in the Caribbean and the Americas, right? How all of those things are part of that time, right? So in terms of thinking about how, it, how this matters for, um, for race or how race figures into this, right? Even the European dandies, right, were seen as kind of outre figures, right? So you can imagine that when a black person shows up in exaggerated clothing, is kind of deploying gestures of wit that are either sartorial or um, verbal, is a figure of critique, sometimes by actually saying nothing, just by showing up, right? That is, in some ways, this figure is questioning hierarchy, is questioning social order, right? Is questioning what's appropriate or who's appropriate in what circumstances, right? And, And really kind of being that kind of interrogative figure, right? So What's interesting to me is that European dandyism and black dandyism actually turn out to be historically co-terminal, that they begin at the same time. and that as soon as right, European dandies are kind of doing their thing in and around European courts, at the same time, black people are being imported into those courts, dressed as fops, I mean, used as objects, right? Those objects, people as objects, soon learned about their own objectification. And we're able in some ways to turn that to their own advantage, some of them.
0: Right. And you actually positioned the Black Dandy as a, quote unquote, racialized performer. And you write that, uh, quote, Black character and identity begin as a white fantasy of Black reality, which thereafter Black people must confront. So can you explain to our listeners what you mean by this? Uh, You write that the Black image actually precedes the Black man's presence in England. Yeah,
2: I would say that what's what's really important to remember in this time period and even in some ways before that, so we're talking kind of like 16th, 17th century, uh, even before the 18th century is that, you know, nobody is identifying as black during that time. right? Um, right. <laughs> uh, blackness is associated, you know, with the devil, right. Um, In religious traditions. Right. And, and blackness has this kind of um, connotation of kind of evil or lack. So there's a really interesting way in which, you um, uh, as you know, the "quote-unquote" discovery of Africa, um, uh, exploration, right, of um, of Africa and um, and the Americas, creates these kinds of fantasies of um, of who lives there and who those people are and where they're coming from. Are they are they representatives of human civilization? Are they something else? Right? They become associated with blackness, um, with evil. So blackness is an aspersion at first. And it's that aspersion and it's those kinds of, you know, travel narratives, um, illustrated travel narratives that depict Africans in particular and some Native Americans. There is a reputation around racialized difference Mm -hmm. that precedes the arrival of actual people who are who are um, racially different um, in Europe. So that is in some ways what I meant about black character and identity begin as a kind of white fantasy. It begins in this fantasy of um, of absolute difference. In, in humanity. but what is what's interesting about that, right? And we fast-forwarding a couple of hundred years, so this is a little bit, you know, quick and dirty history. Say, for example, when enslaved Africans are imported to the Americas, it's during that process of importation that they are both marked as black, right? They are seen as black in terms of being a group of people who are who are undifferentiated in the European mind by geographical origin, by um, geographical origin, by say um, group affiliation or anything. They become they become not right specific Africans from specific places, but a kind of black mass. But right once they arrive, that aspersion of blackness actually transforms into an affiliation amongst Africans, right? An affiliation and an association. So blackness becomes for them a way to think about their solidarity, right? And that's when the kind of blackness becomes transformed from something that's an aspersion, right? Into an affiliation and something closer to, you know, what we would think about as kind of a diaspora consciousness. So blackness precedes people. And then when people arrive, right, at that blackness, it immediately in some ways becomes transformed by their kind of group needs, group desires, survival, right, into something really different. So this is is an amazing time period in which to kind of study that, right? And there are some really amazing historians who have done, um, who have really kind of done that work about how Africans become black and then how blackness becomes something completely different.
0: Yeah, but I think you're one of the first scholars who really looks at it through the lens and the history of the Black Dandy specifically. Yes. And you locate the first Black Dandies in 18th century England during this period of the so-called Enlightenment, and I say that with quotation because this is a period where we're witnessing the objectification of slaves as status symbols by a wealthy middle class. And can you talk about the Atlantic slave trade and its new culture of consumption and how it really created this vogue for dandified or quote-unquote luxury black servants? In what ways did this forced foppishness lay the foundations for the emergence of the black dandy? Yeah. So
2: 18th century England, as I was saying, is this incredible period of time in which many, many things are um, transforming, right? And they're transforming precisely because of imperialism, and uh, the way in which uh, England's imperial power has allowed it to access goods and people from around the world. So the slave trade is a a, a moment in which um, material goods become increasingly arbiters, right, of a social hierarchy. So those people, those wealthy merchants, I mean, first of all, the, the aristocracy, the royalty and aristocracy and those wealthy, wealthy merchants who are participating in the slave trade, all of a sudden have access to luxury items that distinguish them class-wise, right, from other people. They have access to, so for example, um, imperial products, tea, sugar, coffee, rum, and slaves. And they use all of those objects, right, uh, to, to enhance their status. Right? And the most high status item, actually, in that group is an enslaved black person who does not work. So just as tea and coffee are imported back to the imperial center, um, London, Paris, um, other places, um, so were people who were then used as, as uh, luxury items, so, these people uh, were dressed in uh, fancy clothing, often educated and educated in um, the kind of aristocratic arts, so music, rhetoric. They were taught all of the things that one would need to um, uh, do well at court. And they were used as um, as luxury items to distinguish themselves. So, Again, the highest uh, item you could have would be a person who was not laboring. And what was interesting about this, it was it was a common practice in in European courts and became, as wealth kind of trickled down into the merchant class, became something um, that high class merchants were interested in as well. Um, the interesting thing about this is that you know you can you can objectify a person, but that person is still a person. <laughs> and so um the enslaved in these positions, Soon, um, some of them, again, not all of them, soon really had a chance and understood, I mean, not soon, but almost immediately, um, the ways in which they were being exploited and actually came to kind of understand and analyze the hierarchies that they were being placed inside. And some of them, and I write about some of them in my book, I mean, some of them were able to sort of take this, what we might consider a kind of sartorial joke on them, and turn it into something that actually enabled them to have, for a time, a little bit of power right, over their situation, over the hierarchies in which they were kind of embroiled.
0: Right, so that actually leads us to my next question, which is, I'm hoping you can tell us about the mid-18th century celebrity and quote-unquote fop among fops, Julius Suby. So in what ways does his relationship to fashion challenge perceptions of blackness? You write that it was at around age 19 that Julius, quote, transformed himself from a black in fops clothing to a fop who was black essentially meeting white excess with black luxuriance
2: yeah Subis is a fascinating character, and um, I felt really lucky when I found him. Um, he had been mentioned. I'd heard about him from some uh, other academics, and I was like, hmm, I really need to look on that. And when I did look into his history, I was
0: amazed. <laughs> so um yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, Subis
2: is one of these figures who, and I actually um, was thinking about this. he's one of these figures who actually understands clothing, right, as a semiotic right? Or that clothing has kind of semiotic, um, meaning, meaning that it's clothing is laden, right? For all of us with, um, personal, cultural, social, and political messages, right? He understood this that need to be read, right? And that can be interpreted. He understood this from the very beginning, I would say. And, um, he was an enslaved black man who, who was brought as a child, actually, um, as a kind of, you know, early teenager to England to be a servant to the Duchess of Queensbury. And what Sabisa's duties were, were to, I mean, again, be this kind of um, luxury item. For the Duchess, but they became very close. So he was he was given the most elaborate clothing, right? The most famous piece of which is um, he had diamond buckled, red heeled shoes. Um, given the most luxurious clothing um, that was available for um, a man or a male figure in the 18th century. Given this kind of very quality education, so he was literate and a well known opera singer as well as, I think he played the violin or the viola. He was a constant companion of the Duchess, which meant that he sat in on all of her social visits. So he was he was just a part of her household and, um, and a regular part of her household and was given all of the privileges of say a child who was not an enslaved child, but um, given all these privileges. But, but Subis really understood his unique position, right? As somebody who on the one hand bolstered the Duchess of Queensbury's power, right, as, uh, as an individual who could afford to have someone like him around. So he understood that, right, but he also understood that he was in a, u- a unique position and that he was not only a well-trained, right, courtier, but had certain kind of other talents, charm, a talent for intrigue. He was incredibly social, Right. And, and very, very witty. Right. So he also understood that the things that he kind of naturally brought to the role were things that he could use to his advantage. So that was in some ways, I think the, the changing point from him being, you know, a black in fops clothing to a fop who was black. Right. And he used that kind of like uniqueness and notoriety to actually, in some ways, question all of the hierarchies that were around him. Right. He would go out into the park with white footmen right? Whereas normally footmen were black. He would go to the opera and occupy uh, the most um, expensive box, right? And take, um, have white companions with him. He would occasionally sing at the opera, but in the role of a fellow, but he would take that Othello role on kind of ironically and with a kind of um, wink, wink. He did everything he could, Right, to kind of blow out right, his uh, the way in which he was being styled and sort of you know kind of constantly again kind of wink right at oh, you don't, you don't think a black person can do this, I can do all of this and I can do more right So in that way he was incredibly unique, incredibly um, he became very famous. Um, he was you know welcomed at the kind of tables of the aristocracy in their drawing rooms um, in all of the clubs, right But he also occupied uh, also kind of he's on the one hand unique and then also, typical. And here's the typicality part. In 18th century England, the places that, that Julius would find himself, right, say, for example, at a coffee shop, what's also going on at that coffee shop, as he is holding forth, is um, slaves are being bought and sold, right? Wow. Coffee shops were often the places where um, transactions, um, where ships that were coming in with slaves to be sold in London were often, the cargo was adjudicated at coffee shops. So he would be there, Right, as people were, um, as his fellow Africans were being bought and sold. He also found himself in other arenas, right, where, you know, he would be waited on by black folks who were enslaved. And he was, he was ultimately freed, but nevertheless, he was always in this environment where the proper status of a black person was constantly being questioned. He, he in any environment, asked that question, right? Was it, right, was slavery, um, as some people argued, a, an institution that was designed to, quote, care for people who could not care for themselves, right? Was slavery an institution that was designed to, right, um, take care of people who were potentially, right, um, uh, less than human, right? Was slavery an institution, right, that was designed to do all of this kind of oppression and um, oppressive care? Right. Did black people need that when they had people like Subis and other people around them who were perfectly capable of being educated, who were perfectly capable, capable of running their own affairs, who were perfectly capable of seeing opportunity and taking advantage of it. Right. I mean, so in any given environment, he was always offering that question. And ultimately, though, I would say that um, he got into a bunch of trouble, though, Um, eventually. Yeah. You know, he took it too far or he took it too far for the structure around him and, um, you know, got into trouble potentially with, and this is, you know, historically uh, one is unable to determine exactly what happened, got into trouble with a maid in, I think the Duchess's, um, household. And again, typical, right? What could happen to him as did happen to other people is people who were people in his position who were, um, who got into trouble, or even who matured into, um, matured into men were often, um, as, as well as they were treated during their teenage years, were often sent away, right, as men. They could not be accommodated, right, in an aristocratic household as mature, desiring uh, individuals, right? So he was sent away to India, which is where he um, ended his life um, as, I think he was a course master, in the end, so somebody who um, broke horses uh, for a living. So he had this extraordinary life in which some parts of what he did and was able to do were completely, uh, I mean, a result of a combination, right, of this kind of white desire for the ultimate luxury and what he brought to that situation as critique and analysis, right? At the same time, he had a very typical experience as an enslaved African, right, who was at ultimately the whim of the institution that quote unquote in which he was captured or you know according to some other people which created him
0: right and I think he's right actually that he he died in his early 40s um he was an incredible equestrian and he died um breaking a horse but what an incredible story and um man to discover and learn about thank you for sharing his legacy with us So now we're going to jump across to America, and I'm hoping you can talk about the exportation of the Black Dandy to America, and specifically the performative traditions of these African American festivals, which I had never heard of. They're incredibly interesting. Um, Negro Election Day and Pinkster, um, something you refer to as sites of race and class cross-dressing. Yeah,
2: um, I hadn't heard of these either, even though, um, as I think I mentioned in the book, that um, Negro Election Day actually happened in my hometown, oh, <laughs> um, which I was fascinated to learn. Actually, one of the best um, sources for it is a is a local history written by um, a historian that comes from my hometown in Connecticut um, in the in the 19th century. So I was shocked to learn that. But it was really I mean, really interesting for me to think about um, kind of what that meant. These holidays come out of, um, at least Negro Election Day um, in particular, come out of a early modern festival tradition in which, you know, there might be a day in the year in which people would kind of celebrate by having, quote unquote, the world turn upside down, right? So it was a day in which people voluntarily upended primarily kind of social and class hierarchies. So it was a day when, you know, poor working class people could kind of dress up and enjoy luxuries, right, that were provided to them, right, by their um, masters or the people that they were working from, working for, right, if they were um, servants of various kinds. And for example, um, servants, they they might be served by their masters. It was a day in which people under kind of really adverse labor conditions, people were allowed to kind of get off a little steam. Like it was that kind of day, so these world turned upside down festivals. So Negro Election Day and Pinkster kind of come out of that um, tradition. But I'm going to back up a little bit and say a little bit about the exportation of the Black Dandy to America. Right? If we think about all of this play, right, the way that you know, for example, Subis is, um, you know, on the one hand performing a particular kind of blackness for the people around him, at the same time that he's critiquing what that blackness means. Right? That gets imported to the U.S. Right? Just through colonization. Um, but it meets it meets a really different um, reality. And one of the things that's true about any of these, um, what we call kind of luxury slaves in 18th century European capitals like London or Paris, are that there just weren't there were the black population there small, right? So you know, three or four black fops that are famous are not going to kind of upend social realities there, right? But um, in the U.S. Um, or in the Americas, where the proportion of the population of black to white is really different, right? Um, in particular, in the South, and even in some places in the North, where there are far more um, enslaved people relative to um, relative to kind of white masters, um, this takes on a really different tone and possibility. Right. So, in some ways, the black dandy figure. is is a figure of of kind of, you know, both more and a different kind of anxiety in early America, right? It becomes something that absolutely in some ways needs to be um, contained, right? But it's also something that initially people both, I think, um, white um, colonists and the kind of black enslaved or black free who are living, um, living uh, with them, Are Also, the traditions of play are still there, right? So this is where these two holidays come from. I mean, Negro Election Day is a day um, that happened once a year around election time in which black free people and enslaved in the northern states primarily were um, allowed to dress up and, and have a festival that would allow them for one day to choose a Negro governor of the state who in some cases actually had power. Right. Right. So black people would wait right, all year right, um, for the election of their Negro governor right, in order to adjudicate some disputes that were specific to the black community that the black governor could take care of right? or to, you know, to a series of um, desires and asks right, that they wanted. Right? They would wait for that. But, but part of the day right, included the enslaved or free people being given fancy clothing by their masters in order to kind of have this incredible party. Right, in which for that time, say 12 hours, right, um, uh, the black people in that area were in charge, were allowed a kind of what I describe as a kind of dream of freedom, right, were allowed in some ways to make all their own decisions and, um, and in some ways to tap into their own pleasure and desires. For that one um, day. And people who observed these festivals were always just kind of shocked, right, by the fact that um, the fact that they were these kind of world upside down um, situations. Pinkster was really similar, um, except that this Pinkster happened mostly in um, uh, Northern uh, New York and, you know, kind of Vermont, New Hampshire. Pinkster was different in that the Pinkster festivals were very similar in that a, a Negro king was chosen. Right. And that king was often somebody who was the kind of most powerful or most revered or oldest African in the area. Right. Some, so it had this it imported also these kind of traditions from Africa in which um, elders were incredibly respected. Right. As judges and as people with power and the people to whom you would go right? to adjudicate certain kinds of concerns. So um, a Negro king or pinkster king was chosen in those um, situations. But those festivals were also really multicultural. Right. So that local Native Americans would come and it would be a time in which, you know, the kind of underclass of colonial America, again, had its day. Right. When they exchanged traditions, when they in some ways also were able to exemplify and dance their own traditions. Right. So it was a real festival day in which, again, the world is turned upside down in which. The traditions and the cultures and um, the kind of emerging culture of, of Black America, of Native America, of America, right, were celebrated on that day. Um, and it included this incredible sartorial element in which people were allowed to dress up in fancy clothing and to, you know, dance and make fun of, right, also um, some of their white masters. So the dances that came out of this um, tradition were, were the things that people really were, interested in when they recorded the festivals because they often um, were mocking, right, of 18th century um, dances, um, but mocked in a kind of very beautiful and pleasurable way.
0: Yeah. And they're especially fascinating too within the context of slavery because it feels like they're basically giving Black men and women, um, many of whom are enslaved still, this kind of power for the day, which, yes, which in the face of you know, slavery and and the stripping of these people's humanity is just, it just seems quite odd to me.
2: <laughs> well, that's what I think is so interesting about any of these discussions about um, about the relationship, say, for example, of a racialized body in fancy clothing, mm-hmm. right? Because on the one hand, that seems anomalous. It's like, oh, how did that happen when we mostly associate, in particular in this time period, right, anyone who, who would be racialized as not not having that opportunity, not having, um, but being inappropriate, right. For, um, for those folks to have that clothing, but in some ways, right. When, when the person kind of gets into the clothing, right. And, and dances it and performs it and makes it a vehicle of critique. Then the question gets asked as why not, right. (laughs) Why not? Right. So the, so the kind of inhumanity of slavery is, is absolutely seen, especially if we think about how, um, clothing traditions that happened like during the actual kind of slave trade in which people were stripped. They arrived naked. They were given standard issue clothing, you know, one item of clothing for the year, right? So clearly there's a way in which clothing there has this, is part of this process of dehumanization, Mm -hmm. right? But then there's also this process in which clothing is allowed sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes to also have this transformative power on A kind of um, unexpected body, right, can then create a whole series of other meanings, right, a whole series of other possible politics, a whole series of other, you know, cultural possibilities that are unanticipated and in some ways difficult to contain. So even though this one-day festival is designed to sort of, you know, have people let off steam and contain their, you know, contain their desire for more, for freedom, for choice, for pleasure, for you know, for expression of their own desire, even the um, in some ways, staging of it for one day meant that it was possible and could happen again.
0: Right. And if these festivals really liberated the black dandy, even if it was just for this one day. One day. In what ways did the blackface minstrel show seek to oppress him? So you see in the 19th century, the rise in popularity of this blackface minstrel show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of coincides directly with the end of slavery. So why is that important?
2: That's a great question. And it was, again, something that I worked really hard in the book to, to establish, right, time-wise. I was like, hmm, so how do, I, how do we think about these festivals, right, and the way in which they are kind of performative gestures of freedom, Right and possibility. How do we think about those in relationship to the main right way that um, that race becomes performed in the nineteenth century, right, um, on stage, or um, which is through the blackface mental show and blackface gesture um, in general? And when I was able to establish that they were happening um, kind of simultaneously and in relation to each other, it explained a lot, right? Yeah. So this, so so this um, possibility of freedom, the possibility of the fact that, you know, if we think even back to Subis, a well-educated black person could occupy fancy dress and just be a regular part of society, a regular part of high society, right? A valued member of a salon, for example. So if we think about that and the threat that that would pose to people who are really invested in maintaining slavery's oppressive nature and, um, you know, who are really anti-abolitionist, you see how the containing of Any relation between black bodies, black people, class, you know, not class costing, but but an aspiration, right? How the containment of aspiration becomes something that's really, really important to how slavery works in the 19th century, um, which is why, you know, li- literacy was denied, any kind of um, personalized clothing was denied, right? I mean, the kind of aspiration and personalization were really um, important there. So um, as abolition moves forward, right, and we have far more um, free black people, right, who are who are not in that particular oppressive institution, right, but who are still struggling with other things, like, the first thing that black people want to do during that time is to, is to, is to personalize, right, is to aspire, is to show bodily, right, a difference in their condition, which often meant that, for example, I have this one great example in, in the book about Frederick Douglass, like, the thing that he wants the most after his freedom is he keeps talking about wanting to have a blue serge suit. Like, it's, he wants the clothing that he feels is appropriate to his new status as an individual, as a person, again, with desire, as a person who understands um, as a pleasure, as a free person right? who can make his own choices. Right. So we see that. So black minstrelsy comes in at the time of abolition, right, because it's it's an, it's a structure that is designed. It can't do anything about the fact that black people are becoming free, but it can do something about kind of recapturing their image.
0: Yeah. And, and kind of influencing public opinion.
2: Exactly. Recapturing their images and influencing public opinion. Right. So so let's make fun of to the to the greatest extent that we can black aspiration. Right. Let's make fun of, again, to the greatest extent that we can, um, striving for education, striving for higher class status, um, striving for, you know, ownership, like striving for, you know, steady work, family. Right. Let's let's just take all of that down right at the time that it's becoming available. Right, so these two things are really, really deeply um, associated with each other. Right, even to the point where we can think about let's mock the kind of respectability that Frederick Douglass wants for himself. Let's mock any kind of black striving. Right, um, as as the nineteenth century goes um, forward, right, and and let's do it continuously. Let's do it um in in every place that we can. Like, let's replace some salient parts of the institution of slavery right, with a Black performativity that is designed to do some of the same work.
0: Yeah. And one of the ways in which these anxieties revealed themselves were in these satires, which are presented as fashion plates. So they're showing these really fashionably dressed Black men and women, but they're obviously making fun of these perceived racial and class transgressions that are inherent in their choice of fashionable attire. There's a fashion plate I came across. I think it's from Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, well, I thought it was a fashion plate, but now reading within the context of your book, it was it was just really fascinating because it is a fashionably dressed black woman, and I immediately I didn't think they were it was making fun of her or or anything to that effect. But looking at you know a black woman in Philadelphia in the 1830s in this fashionable ensemble. Um, it, it really changes within the context of of what you're you're talking about here and these anxieties that they're just um, are being expressed in all these different ways
2: yeah i mean the dandy i mean the, the minstrel show is really fascinating because it usually contains two characters right um or for a long time it in, included two kind of main characters jim crow who was a kind of figure out of a, a figure who is more closely associated with kind of plantation slavery right and the the black dandy figure so these were the two kind of main Ways in which right um, black striving was being mocked in in the show right so the so the dandy figure also comes to represent a kind of northern arrogance right given that the north clearly right um, had a kind of abolition um, a plan or process right that lasted that was much earlier than um, than what happened in the south and Philadelphia was one of the places that had the largest um, Philadelphia New York Washington D C were places that had the largest um, population of free blacks and some free blacks even then who um, who had been fleeing for many, many generations and had actually amassed a certain kind of wealth. Right? So there's a way in which that right, was the kind of truth to the lie around uh, black striving and aspiration and ability, so that they in particular were people who, who needed to be in some ways um, put in their place more than many others right? Because they they were were becoming a sizable community, actually had amassed a certain, some of them um, had amassed a certain kind of like wealth and education and were really active in abolition movements so that there was a way in which um, they were threats and had to be mocked that way in these kinds of um, fashion plates.
0: Right. And if Blackface Minstrel Theater sought to disgrace and belittle the Black dandy, in what ways did author W.E. Du Bois redeem him?
2: Du Bois is a, is a really, um, I think fascinating figure in this conversation, um, partly because he grew up right in the later part of the 19th century and became, you know, really active in the early part of the um, 20th century. So he was he was very very aware, right, of how black people were being perceived, and he was from the north also, so he was very very aware of how black people were being perceived and um, and the difficulty they would have with self perception. And um, the difficulty they would have in some ways of advancing a self-perception that would not be questioned or denigrated, right, in the ways that blackface minstrelsy was, um, was designed to do. And his project, right, I mean, overall, right, I mean, in terms of, he, he lived almost to be 100 years old, so I mean, so I would say <laughs> that his, his early project, right, um, was precisely one that we can think about in its largest scope as one that was about image, and I don't mean that um, just in terms of, you know, kind of uh, representation and, and clothing image, like what he looked like, but also about kind of image images of black people. Right. So he was trained as a philosopher and a sociologist. So he was interested in doing studies right, of um, black people that would give you the real perspective on their lives. Right. And try to get rid of these kind of racist and oppressive images and explain why, for example, right, there was um, why there's entrenched poverty in in american cities or explain why for example i mean he was interested in kind of you know putting some kind of facts onto negative image but he was also interested in advancing an image of black people as striving and as striving in some ways as best they could Right. So he wasn't interested only um, um, he gets a kind of bad rap for this. He wasn't interested only in kind of, you know, thinking about respectability from a kind of, you know, middle or upper middle class point of view. But he was interested in, in, in the different ways in which people um, strove to be better or to um, to do better or, you know, to some ways advance their communities. And one of the ways that he did this, he did this in all kinds of ways, sociological studies, you know, political work, activism. He was a, you know, he was a professor. I mean, he he was constantly working in all of these different ways. But one of the the most fascinating to me was that he was also a writer of fiction, right? Not many people read his fiction and it's admittedly, you know, he's not the greatest novelist, right? Um, (laughs) uh, But what he does in this fiction is fascinating because it's there that he actually, really works on, um, I would say, image and representation, right, in the ways that we've been talking about it today in terms of like kind of like sartorial presentation, thinking very deeply about what we call, you know, kind of in black studies about respectability politics, thinking very deeply about like, you know, what is the difference between presenting an image of blackness that is is pleasing to the self, between that and presenting an image of blackness that may also, right, please a white audience, Right. right? He's interested in that question, and he's interested in that question precisely at the beginning of the twentieth century, right? Which is one of the first time periods in which, you know, due to urbanization and other kind of demographic changes, right, that that black people are um, are actually able to ask that question for themselves, like, what is the difference between thinking about defining, right, respectability, self perception, self, you know, kind of um, self identifying, like, for myself. Right. Versus how do I do that in relationship to um, a kind of white norm or white audience that approves or doesn't disapprove of that? Right. So he was really invested in the questions and really worked those some of those things out in his in his um, fiction, in which the main character is often a black dandy character who is a political activist at the same time, right? Somebody who who is trying in some ways to think about possibility think about opportunity and to think about it like kind of always from what Du Bois would describe as this, um, kind of twofold lens, right. Internally within the black community, um, within black history, right. And externally vis-a-vis right. White power vis-a-vis black representation in the, or, you know, black image in the white mind, like vis-a-vis that he's always trying to do those two things. And he does this really incredibly in the fiction where he has all these characters who, um, where these really well-dressed black men, activists working in the diaspora often representing the race, right, Um, and um, doing that in ways that really kind of ask these questions about, like, you know, do black people actually have access to pleasure? Should they? Is the love of a silk shirt about the love of a silk shirt, (laughs) or is it just, you know, aspiration to whiteness?
0: And these are things he explored in his own dress, right? I mean, every picture I see of him, he is a very snazzy, snappy dresser, so.
2: Absolutely. But it's also true that he's in a tradition that we actually forget about a little bit, although it's been talked about more recently um, because of the, um, I think it's the bicentennial of Frederick Douglass. Like, we're having a lot of Douglass conversations. Like, Frederick Douglass is a similar guy in terms of, you know, a, a kind of quintessential race man who, he was the most photographed man in the 19th century. Wow. He completely understood, right, and used the fact, right, that his image was incredibly important, like actual image, like the photograph. photography, (laughs) but how he looked and presented himself was absolutely important to the kind of political work that he was trying to get done. And again, he wanted to, on the one hand, be an image for black striving people, right? He is, you know celebrated right as a person who um frees himself self-educates right and then becomes this incredible um voice for um for abolition and for justice right so he he becomes this kind of figure within the black community right but he's also very 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 much aware of his status as an example right for white people right <laughs> about, about about black humanity right he's in some ways holding that mantle I mean, throughout the last part of the, you know, middle part to the last part of the 19th century, I mean, image matters, right? And, um, you know, Du Bois, Du Bois and Douglas understood this, as did many, many other people who were active in kind of black freedom struggle from the 19th, always. Right. I mean, always. But in particular, if we think about it coming out of slavery with these with particular relationship to um, how black people were allowed to self-represent and represent and were represented right all the way up until like we can have this conversation about Barack Obama.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Monica. And dress listeners, we have a lot more to talk about. So we will be continuing our conversation about black dandyism into the 20th and 21st centuries next week in part two of this two-part episode next week monica returns to discuss the role black dandies played in the black modernist movement of the harlem renaissance and the power of fashion and protest we end the conversation with a discussion of the black dandy's present-day incarnation
1: in the work of three groundbreaking 21st century artists so stay tuned That does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of fashion, race, and resistance in your closet next time you get dressed.
0: For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed_podcast. underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dressedpodcast without the underscore. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at Dressed at iHeartMedia.com.
1: As always, special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.